following Matt's suggestion, maybe next time we will engage in an ESPN talking heads format. The question is, which one of us will be Skip Bayless? This is Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. I'm Jeffrey Lin. I'm an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. I'm Greg Schill. I'm a law professor at the University of Iowa. Hey, Greg. Hey, Jeff. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about revitalizing older industrial cities. Our guests are Mac McComas and Matt Kahn. Mac McComas is Senior Program Manager at John Hopkins' 21st Century Cities Initiative. And Matt Kahn is Provost Professor of Economics at the University of Southern California. Together, they have a new book called Unlocking the Potential of Post-Industrial Cities. The book examines six older industrial central cities in the U.S., Northeast, and Midwest, Baltimore, Cleveland, Detroit, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and St. Louis. These cities share similar histories of growth, migration, deindustrialization, and decline. The book explores the common set of challenges faced by these cities and the potential outlook for these cities. Welcome, Mac and Matt. Thanks. It's great to be here. Mac and Matt, the book makes a point of taking an urban economics approach to the problems of these cities. What is an urban economics approach and why is it useful for understanding the challenges of these post-industrial cities? Mac, let me start, but I'm going to be brief. So in any microeconomics approach, we focus on individual choice. When I teach and when I think about economics, I'm thinking about people Mac lives in Baltimore. He's made a choice to live there. As of right now, I'm in Los Angeles. I've made a choice not to live there. Jeff, the six cities we discuss in our book compete against other cities to attract people and jobs. And so my view of the economic approach is to look at the incentives of individuals and firms to choose to locate and to spend their time in these six cities. And these six cities will be more likely to flourish if more people and more private sector jobs locate within the boundaries of these cities. And so as a microeconomist, I'm very interested in how these cities compete for talent, people, and jobs. And I'm interested in opportunity cost in the jargon of economics of what are people's other choices? How do Baltimore and St. Louis compare to Seattle and San Francisco? Mac, your thoughts? Yeah, the only thing I'll add to that is that I think bringing in some of the lessons that we do from the urban economics literature helps you think about how these investment decisions that people, businesses, government make in cities really impact everybody else in cities and will influence them to make different decisions based on the decision that they made. So what I'm hearing is the urban economics approach centers the incentives that affect individual decision-making. And we also want to be thinking about what are the factors influencing those incentives? I agree. And so, Jeff, something I've learned from your work and from the work of Ed Glazer and other urbanists is thinking through what's the comparative advantage of each city? Is it a really productive place? Is it a beautiful place? San Francisco, until recently and perhaps going forward, has been both productive and beautiful. Jeff, I hope we can agree that a city will have a better task at attracting people and jobs if it's both beautiful and productive. And Mac and I explore in the book, when you lose your golden goose, when an area deindustrializes, how does it get its groove back? And what are the costs and benefits of competing on improving quality of life versus and or competing on raising its productivity? Yeah, I'll add that. Well, every city might want to be a San Francisco or New York City, they can't. So Baltimore, like Matt said, Baltimore has to build on its strengths. It it has, despite the bad media attention it's gotten, it has a lot of strengths that it can build off of, but it shouldn't try to be New York. It shouldn't try to be San Francisco. So Matt, can I ask you a question there? Why did you move to Baltimore? I've known you for two years, but we've never had the talk. You moved there nine years ago. What brought you to Baltimore? Correct. Yeah. No, I've been in Baltimore for nine years now, and I grew up on the East Coast, so I I loved East Coast cities. So that was kind of my choice set that I was looking at. I grew up in Boston, which was a city that, as I was making my decision of where to move, was 
much more costly to live in than Baltimore. You know, just coming out of college, looking at a cheaper place to live. So all of this influenced my decision. And then you think about what Baltimore has going for it. It's got a great local music, food, art scene. It's quirky. You know, I'm kind of a quirky guy. So that really drawed me in. And Mac, is there a certain four-letter word called beer that is a key import in your life? <laughs> They've got some really great breweries in this city. I'll say that much. <laughs> I think I have one more question to follow up on this urban economics approach. I think for economists in our audience, it would be perfectly uncontroversial that people respond to incentives. And incentives are important for thinking about the behavior of people, but also the fortunes of places. What is the audience you're trying to reach? It, what factors make you think that this sort of thinking may be undersupplied or underutilized, say, by like local policymakers? Jeff, that's a great question. I, as you know, was trained at the University of Chicago in a Milton Friedman, Gary Becker tradition that capitalism gets us to the Pareto optimum, if I could throw out some more horrible jargon. In English, that an economy exhausts the gains to trade. Mac loves Baltimore. We've been to all six of the cities, and we are cautious optimists about all six cities going forward. But Jeff, to answer your question, we believe that there's a coordination failure in these cities. And I'll explain what I mean. Like in a game of chess, there's four levels of improving these cities. We need young people in these cities to invest more in their skills. We need more businesses to successfully launch in these cities. We need local government to invest more in infrastructure and safety and continuing to green the environment. And we need the real estate sector to get the lead out of these older buildings and to rebuild neighborhoods without triggering gentrification with all the negative effects associated with that. And so, Mac, if I set this up, that what I think we've taught our readers, and this is still a work in progress, is the importance of understanding the positive role of government and social cohesion to unlock the full potential of free markets, to encourage urban growth that benefits more than the billionaires. Yeah, I'll add to that by saying about four years ago, before Matt invited me to write this book with him, I was looking at issues of access to capital for small businesses in Baltimore. And we were really drilling down on Baltimore, the city, not the metro area. And we were interested in asking questions about, was there enough competition in banking? Were there enough financial resources there in the market for small businesses and, and entrepreneurs to succeed? And what we clearly uh, and, and quickly learned was that as we go out and talk to elected officials and, and folks that were charged with overseeing economic development in Baltimore and, and Maryland, it became pretty clear that nobody had any idea what these sources of financing were. So a part of it is just sort of laying out the facts, laying out some of the trends and from that baseline of facts, we can start to have a conversation about what some policy reforms and needed interventions might be. And Jeff, I'd like to add one point. I celebrate the recent Nobel Prize to Esther Duflo, Abhijit Banerjee, and Michael Kramer for their great work on using field experiments to reduce poverty in the developing world. Implicit in field experiments is that there are known unknowns. We, um, we're going to run pilot experiments to see what works in cities. I hope that the readers of our book, I'm not Nobel Prize worthy, back is young, maybe he will win the Nobel Prize. But there have not been enough field experiments run in America's cities. And there's interesting political economy there that it's easier to run an experiment in the developing world than to run certain field experiments like moved opportunity in U.S. cities. And so Mac and I tried to expand everyone's imagination of to solve that coordination failure that I mentioned before. What are different possible strategies that might be cost-effective that an ambitious mayor might launch? And so we're really trying to start a discussion. Mac, is it fair to say we don't give a recipe for what's guaranteed to work? I hope we're modest about a pathway to knowledge. Yeah, we're pretty clear that we don't know what's going to turn around the, the six cities we look at of Baltimore, Cleveland, Detroit, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, St. Louis. We're honest that what works in Detroit might not work in Baltimore, what works in Philadelphia might not work in Pittsburgh, and that we don't have the answer. But we can, as you said, provide a pathway to knowledge. And Jeff, one point there. After the events of 2020, a city like Baltimore continues to have a murder challenge. And there's a question of what is the strategy 
Crime is a deterrence to local quality of life and scares away tourists and scares away footloose people to other cities and to the suburbs. Post-George Floyd, every urban police district has to do a better job respecting civil rights and providing street safety. And I think there's an open question in America's cities. How do we do that? What is the choice menu that the police chief in Baltimore can pursue and what's politically palatable and what might be effective? And exploring this, I view as crucial for improving quality of life in our success. I think there's a lot to dig in in the book. And I think you've already kind of surveyed a lot of the main themes. If I could just restate one of them, the economics perspective here is to try to use our knowledge about what incentives people face to add leverage to policy interventions, right? To make policy interventions more effective. Why don't we start a little bit with some background? Because I think that might help ground the discussion a little bit. So what is it about these six cities that you guys found unifying in terms of the challenges that are being faced by these cities? So we started by looking at at Baltimore just because that's where we are, Johns Hopkins University. That's where I've lived for nine years. So very familiar with a lot of the challenges that Baltimore faces. But we didn't want to just write a book about Baltimore. We really wanted to write a book about post-industrial cities in general. And some of the issues that we discuss are issues that all cities face. But in particular, these are older industrial cities. So where Baltimore and Cleveland and Detroit might struggle with a a really old housing stock and 19th century industrial buildings, that might not be a problem in in Phoenix, say. So they're all in in sort of this Northeast or, or Rust Belt region of the U.S. They're all old. They've all seen population decline. They've all seen rising rates of of poverty, violent crime. They've all had environmental issues. They've lost jobs, lost businesses. And so they sort of carry this common set of problems. And Mac, I would add to that racial segregation, that when we look at certain neighborhoods, especially in recent years, are either very white or very highly African-American, that there continues to be racial segregation in these cities. Yeah, often when you overlay redlining maps with some of these maps of crime and, again, environmental issues, it's almost a perfect overlay. So there's a lot of history in these cities that um, they're still dealing with today. And Jeff, I'd add one more point. Coming back to some prominent work by Joe Jorko and Ed Glazer on durable capital and urban decline, when these cities hit their manufacturing peak in the 1950s and 60s, durable housing was built, but then the jobs left leaving the durable housing, and then real estate prices fall as demand for housing declines, population shrinks. Baltimore's lost 33% of its population over the last 50 years. And what happens in these cities is a little bit of a death spiral of rising share of people in poverty, 25% in Baltimore, declining home prices in many neighborhoods in these cities, and thus a declining tax base, giving the mayor less tax revenue to spend on redistribution and local infrastructure. And that is the basis of this poverty trap, which is not all bad news, but that's setting the stage. And so, Mac, uh, did we cringe when we finished chapter two as we set the stage, or we knew we're going to pivot to more optimism out of that chapter? You know, we wanted to be honest about the problems that these cities face, but this isn't necessarily news to anybody. So we didn't want to spend too much time on highlighting the bad. We wanted to highlight the potential, and and that's why that's in the title of our book. This is interesting because the history highlights how these coordination problems can run both ways, right? The sort of deindustrialization of the mid-20th century kicked off this vicious cycle, right, where one bad change begat another. And similarly, like your book highlights the problems of rebuilding some of these places and that there's a lot of interdependence between different kinds of people or businesses or governments, right, and their investment decisions. We agree. And so one example are the anchor institutions like Case Western in Cleveland and Johns Hopkins. Matt, from your years at Hopkins, have there been times when Johns Hopkins as a university has grown more optimistic that as an anchor institution, it can help to make a big push? Yeah, I mean, you really saw that after the Freddie Gray unrest in Baltimore in in 2015, where 
at first the university, but then they pulled in other large anchor institutions in the city, decided that they really wanted to put a lot of effort into moving some of their purchasing and hiring power into the city itself. So instead of buying ice cream from the cheapest vendor that they could find, they were going to source it locally and they were going to provide incentives for different departments and units to hire locally, provide homeowning incentives for people to live and work near campuses. So they really doubled down on not just locating in Baltimore, but supporting businesses and people who are located there as well. I want to circle back to this microeconomic approach that you folks use as your point of departure. First, we're talking about a universe of six cities, which are Baltimore, Philadelphia, Cleveland, St. Louis, Detroit, which I grew up about an hour outside of Detroit. So I have thoughts on that and Pittsburgh. So when thinking about these cities and population, how to attract people in urban economics, there's this model of markets competing for laborers and consumers and people sort of move to the best, the optimal fit for them. We know that that model is stylized and that many people face barriers to moving or simply have a strong preference for remaining in situ, even if by some measures they'd be better off moving. So I think it's important to bring out that we're talking about marginal deciders here. So people who might be persuaded to move, people who also would be persuaded to stay. These are all cities that have lost, as Matt noted, millions of people over the years collectively. When I was growing up in the 80s and 90s in Michigan, Detroit was obviously the big city, still is, the biggest city in the state, but it had around a million people. And before then, it had around 2 million people. Population actually peaked around 1950, close to 2 million. And uh, today it's got around 600,000. So it's actually shrunk by about two thirds in the past half century or more which is really striking. And a lot of those people who left the city, of course, moved to the suburbs just outside the city. And so I guess I have two questions here. One is about the role of transportation technology, specifically the car paired with the freeway. It's something I know that Jeff has written a lot about. And with that, the effect of that shock on these legacy cities and why it's different in these cities than in some other cities of a similar vintage that haven't had the same fate. And then two, kind of what transportation does to the level of demand for a number of cities. So Baltimore is both helped and hurt by its proximity to DC and perhaps Philadelphia, right? And we could say the same for Newark being fairly close to New York City and plenty of other places. Is there the same demand in 2021 for as many kind of big cities in a given area as there would have been two centuries ago when transportation between cities was much more laborious? So, Mac, let me go first. I love the questions. I'm going to answer them in reverse order. Mac and I had an opportunity to speak to the mayor of Baltimore. I thought we had a great talk with him. And we mentioned to him that one of our ideas for Baltimore is for there to be a faster train connecting D.C. 40 miles away to Baltimore. And he said to us, subject to costs, of course, that he loved it. Quality adjusted real estate in Baltimore Mac, can be 60 percent below D.C. prices. And we had a common vision that Baltimore, especially in the emerging work from home economy, could be a bedroom community for D.C., especially for D.C. workers who only go to work two or three days a week. So, Greg, one short answer to your question before I let Mac in, and then I'll come back to your first question, is within a system of cities, Baltimore is at peace being a suburb of D.C. And if this allowed the city to attract more middle class people to live and to be civically engaged in the city. So a very interesting question is, does a city make a comeback by attracting jobs or attracting people in our emerging work from home economy? They're not the same thing. Matt, can I let you riff on that before I come back to the start of Greg's question? Yeah. So I'd add to that, you know, just at the moment we're looking at right now, well, if you, if you look at the, the data's lag, but for two years ago, already in Baltimore, if you look at sort of origin and destination of workplace and home, about half of the people that live in Baltimore already work outside the city. So some of these transit improvements that Matt was talking about would increase that ability, increase the, the labor market. We recently wrote a small little report on the potential of what a faster train from Baltimore to DC could do. And if you sort of look at a two mile radius outside of the train station in DC and looked at the job space there, 
that would essentially double the job space of the entire city of Baltimore. So there's real potential there. But I think you already see a willingness for people to live in one city and work in another. It just plays all down to sort of ability and time. If I can just hop in, Matt, before you take it away on the first question. So imagine tomorrow that train line is built and it's the fares are affordable and so on. I assume you would support relaxing land use restrictions that are within a reasonable distance of the train route, right? Otherwise, there's going to be a massive run-up in the price of land. Whether there's a massive run-up in the price of housing depends on land use restrictions. Is that a fair reduction of that? Yes, I fully buy in to Ed Glazer and other urban star academists' vision that we need to unleash real estate developers in cities to upzone. You are absolutely right. In Los Angeles, near Culver City, a fast train that goes east-west has been built. Need to upzone there. Greg, you're absolutely right. I want to pivot back to Greg's question about cities and suburbs. Steve Levitt and Julie Berry Cullen wrote a prominent paper 20 years ago where they documented that when center city crime rises, college-educated urbanites are much more likely to move to the suburbs. Implicit in that paper is a transportation technology that folks have cars. Transportation technology, as Greg alluded to, plays a key role in determining one's ability to vote with one's feet and to move out of the center city's jurisdiction. And so, Greg, I would add to your point that I view work from home as a fast commuting technology that one doesn't even have to leave one's home to work. And so even in an economy where there's cars, where we've read Nate Baumsnow's work on the causal effect of highways in causing suburbanization, in an economy where we have fast transportation and where we have work from home, Mac and I believe that that creates an imperative for center cities to do an even better job at providing local public goods to retain the tax base. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And one of the reasons we wanted to focus on these cities was that it was clear, I think as briefly mentioned up front, that while these cities have seen a lot of population loss, there are a lot of people that are going to stay in these cities, not regardless of incentives, but it would be tough to get them out and think about moving somewhere else. And because of that, it becomes imperative that you improve schools and you reduce violent crime. And why that's relevant here is I think car ownership rates are extremely low in a lot of these cities. So what that means is that people's, the jobs that are accessible to them are extremely limited, especially given the rather weak um, transportation systems that, that exist. If you can only get to a thousand job opportunities on one bus line, then you don't have a whole lot of choice there. It seems like there's a couple of strong arguments here for policymakers to focus on improving local quality of life. One is this mechanism that Greg was describing, where people are immobile to some extent, and maybe some people more than others. And so to deliver welfare improvements, you want to kind of improve the neighborhoods where they live in. The other part of Greg's question, which is that in today's economy, cities have transitioned from places of manufacturing to places for there's this term from this paper by Fabian Ecker, skilled, scalable services. And one of the sort of implications of this paper is that there's only a limited number of places where there's like these agglomerations, you know, New York, San Francisco, right? And so that means these other cities are really going to be competing on quality of life as a source for prosperity. Matt, let me pitch this to you, building on Jeff's point. When Amazon was deciding where to locate HQ2, did it really take a look at Baltimore? Why does Amazon have warehouses in the Baltimore area and not at HQ2? Despite Baltimore being one of the many cities that offered a large incentive package to Amazon, I don't think it was any real surprise that they chose a place they would have gone anyway after that competition. And they have huge warehouses in Baltimore because... Baltimore has a really expansive port. They do a lot of traffic there. They have train lines and they have a lot of workers who are able to take these warehouse jobs who might've worked at, you know, one of the steel mills that was in Baltimore city beforehand, but they didn't see it as a place where a bunch of young millennial techies necessarily want to live and work. You know, people complain in, in Baltimore all the time that it has a horrible bicycle lane infrastructure. And you look at places like Portland and Seattle and San Francisco, and it's pretty different over there. 
I want to kind of go back to this question about coordination problems, which is such a central part of the book. One implication of a coordination problem might be that you might be able to solve it through a big push, right? A big investment by the government or by some other big developer, for example, or an institution to help coordinate all of these different actors, right? You can get real estate developers to join in, you can get the government to invest some stuff, and you can sort of like kick off this virtuous cycle. But I read the book as a little bit skeptical of that style of policy. I think that's fair. We have seen cities make a comeback. So guys, I grew up in New York City in the 1970s. And if you had told my father in 1975 what New York would achieve under Mayor Bloomberg, he would have said that you were smoking some powerful marijuana. So some cities in recent years have made terrific comebacks. Mac, do you remember our discussion with a prominent Italian urban economist who did not think that the public sector growth would be the way. So, Jeff, we spoke with a prominent Italian urban economist who you know well, who I will not name, so we don't have a one-to-one function, who was skeptical of an enormous public sector push, Keynes almost putting money in bottles, that that was the way to give everyone a job, to have the purchasing power, to make the place make a comeback. Matt, did we whip out about naming our favorite big push? Yeah, we went back and forth on whether this was something that we could propose as a serious idea. And what we came up against was just the fact that while some of these cities, you know, you look at their budgets, they're operating in capital budgets, and they're in the billions. So if you look at Baltimore City's budget, it's the same as their annual budget. It's similar to T. Rowe Price. So it's not small, but when you're thinking about a customer base of 600,000 residents and sort of shifting and realigning everything you're going to invest in, it becomes a bit of a chess game that's a little impossible to get right. What I would add, and for me to be a little bit more sober to stop speaking about marijuana, I think my favorite big push is with a credible decline in crime brought about through respecting everyone's civil rights, that this would unleash the new urbanism, the consumer city effects And that this would bring a new group of individuals. If Biden brings down Trump's immigrant wall, if more immigrants are welcomed into these cities, many have shown an interest in moving to post-industrial cities. So a combination of improved quality of life and welcoming immigrants through street safety, I think is my favorite big push for unlocking all four of the factors we mentioned before. I think the immigration piece is really critical. We've talked about this false but helpful dichotomy of amenity cities and sort of supercharged agglomeration cities. And of course, there's overlap. And then there are also cities that are in between. But one attribute that many of the sort of lifestyle amenity cities have is that they're in climates where it's nice to be outdoors most of the year. And I forget the quote. I don't know if it's still true, but it was, I guess, once the case that the best predict of a city's population growth was the average January temperature or something like that. But there are a lot of places that are not in the South or the Southwest, but places like Portland and Seattle that are doing very well. And they have very moderate temperatures, whereas nobody moves to the Midwest where I live for the weather. Maybe Baltimore. I don't know. It's at least more moderate in Baltimore and Philadelphia. Yeah. So places like that probably are not going to attract people. For that reason, they probably don't have a near future as global cities, even if they had a past, some of them as global cities. But they may be able to be places where people can attain affordable urbanism, places where it is affordable to have a house with a small yard and maybe one car, and maybe that's enough. Or if public transit were to improve, perhaps without even a car. But either way, it's just a more affordable lifestyle than would be possible in, say, exurban Atlanta, let alone a place like New York. But exurban Phoenix, Atlanta, Dallas, you definitely need two cars and all the other costs would be higher, even though they're much lower than the superstar cities. Matt, can I ask you to speak to that? So in your neighborhood near Hopkins, Is the middle-class dream flourishing there? Is there an optimism or this is a superstar neighborhood? It's a neighborhood on the rise, but I mean, when you compare that housing prices are a quarter of what they are in Washington, D.C., yet I can walk 10, 15 minutes, be it some amazing bars and restaurants. I've got a museum of art and a five-minute walk that has one of the largest collections of, of Matisse's. It's got Picasso's. It's got Cezanne's. I mean, I can walk to a park two miles from the Inner Harbor, beautiful waterfront. 
it's got all the amenities that people are looking for in cities. But to Matt's point, people are driven off by things like violent crime. So it becomes imperative to improve safety. And Matt, to ask you a question there, we have had the chance to get to know Andre Perry. And can you bring out some of the themes of his work, of how successful African-American entrepreneurs, their revenues have suffered because of fears of crime? What do you view as some of the themes there relevant for our six cities? Yeah, so Andre Perry has this great, pretty recent study that looks at the relationship between Yelp reviews, the neighborhood that a business is located in, and revenue growth. And essentially what he finds is that similarly rated businesses that are in majority Black neighborhoods see less revenue growth than similarly rated businesses that are located in majority white neighborhoods. And it goes back to the old phrase, our ice is just as cold. These businesses are providing great services, but they're not seeing similar revenue growth. And in the conclusion of that piece, one of the things he looks at is, well, you know, these are neighborhoods that have seen disinvestment. Their streetscapes are really not the same. And a lot of the decisions of governments about where to clean up sidewalks and repair infrastructure, and a lot of times these neighborhoods are the ones that get left behind. The city's Department of Planning did a analysis looking at where they were putting in their capital spending and found that majority white neighborhoods got twice the capital investment that majority black neighborhoods did. Jeff, a question for you, building on what Mac was saying. In Baltimore, there's concern that the show The Wire has persisted defects of impacting people's perceptions. Jeff, would you believe a story, going back to Ken Arrow, of statistical discrimination when individuals don't know what is a crime level in a Black neighborhood? Does the wire subconsciously jump into their head and they don't visit that store and Andre Perry's unfortunate facts then emerge? So how can society rectify that? Because that's a tragedy if a quality business does not attract business because of stereotypes. That's a great question. I think the general idea here is the role of information and the role of expectations in investments. Right. So I think one interesting idea that comes out of the research of Ingrid Ellen is that, and this also relates to Matt's discussion about the importance of crime and safety reduction. And so Ingrid Ellen has this paper with some co-authors looking at reductions in crime as an important precondition for sort of the recent increases in demand for central city living that we've seen in the last 20 years or so. And one interesting result that came out of her paper was that it was oftentimes existing residents of a metropolitan area who held on to older ideas of what safety conditions were in central city neighborhoods. And so if you actually looked at who are the kinds of people who are more responsive to current safety conditions, it was actually people moving from other cities into, say, Baltimore's of the world. And those people were actually making decisions that seemed to correlate better with actual current conditions and less so with historical or stereotypical decisions. The other part where expectations seems to play an important role here in the development of central cities is in human capital or skill investments. And for example, so you cite a lot of Stephanie DeLuca's work surveying the expectations of young people in Baltimore. What did you learn from that work? So Stephanie DeLuca had some really great surveys that, again, were both before, after, and during the Freddie Gray unrest in, in 2015. And one of the big findings she had when she asked about teenagers and, and their experiences of that event and their thoughts on the future, she would ask them, both where do you see yourself in, in the future, but also do you see yourself in Baltimore? And almost all of the, the youth that she interviewed said that they saw success as being able to get out of Baltimore. So it wasn't even a particular job that they saw as, as being successful, but in itself, the ability to leave the city was a marker of success to say, I got out. You don't want to hear that as a booster of the city. And Mac, a simple human capital point. 
If young people think the local economy is booming, I think they're going to invest more in their skills if they want to stick around. So Jeff, Mac and I are adherents of Chuck Mansky's worldview of expectations about if one doesn't fear crime, if one thinks one's going to live to age 50, and if one thinks that there is a job trajectory, we think that influences the choices that teenagers make. So Jeff, I'm an adherent of the Gary Becker rational addiction approach that teenagers are rational and forward-looking. And I realize that our age of behavioral economics, that might be a controversial claim, but expectations matter even more when folks are such shrewd chess players in planning out their future. Can we go maybe from the local to the hyper-local here? So one city that is not in your group, but shares a lot of attributes with those that are, is Chicago. And Chicago is an interesting city, somewhat like Philadelphia. It has a core where real estate prices are very high. Whatever sort of social health metric you would want to look at, it rates very well. Educational attainment, poverty rates, infant mortality, life expectancy, what have you. There was an article in the New York Times comparing life expectancy in Streeterville in Chicago, which is right on the lake where Northwestern Business and Law School are located with, I think it was the Woodlawn neighborhood, which is just several miles south of the loop. And something like like a 30-year disparity was like you would live like 50% longer if you lived in Streeterville on average than Woodlawn. So I guess my question is, it's non-falsifiable to say that fear of crime isn't deterring people from living in Chicago because it's just so confounded by other factors. But if you were to look at sort of the success of Chicago, Chicago has been able to be successful, as you mentioned in the book, make a lot of progress and kind of make a significant transition from the industrial age to the information age, despite having extremely high levels of crime, which is not an endorsement of the status quo. You know, that's bad. It would be better if crime were lower. But if you were kind of wondering why is Chicago successful and Baltimore less successful, crime is not an obvious reason. Crime levels are not an obvious reason. And maybe it's the distribution of crime, or maybe it's the fact that Chicago is such a big city that it has a large, more or less contiguous area where crime levels are low enough that people with options will choose to stay there. I think one could come up with various theories, but I'm wondering what your theory is and what that says about not tastes with regarding crime, which I share your view, Matt, that rational teenagers would would choose to leave an area that is high in crime and public policy should strive to reduce crime levels. But how does this work kind of below the municipal level? Greg, I love this question. Matt, let me go first. In our book, we cite both Rosh Chetty's work and Jim Heckman's work. And as someone born in Chicago, who met my wife in Chicago, and my son is right now on the south side of Chicago taking an economics test. Greg, what fascinates me on the south side of Chicago is Brian Jacobs' work of when there were the Taylor homes in Chicago, economists doing great work on what is the consequences of growing up in hyper-segregated poverty. And that a challenge that Brian Jacob and Eric Chin and others have documented. One more point that I would add, something that Mac and I don't settle, is Raj Chetty's solution to reducing poverty in cities is many more vouchers, an expansion of the Move to Opportunity program. And I support that. Urban economists worry that if that there can be general equilibrium effects, just as there was opposition to busing in the late 60s and early 70s, would an unintended consequence of a greatly expanding a voucher program be middle-class pushback in those areas where the poor move? I hope we don't live in that world. Jim Heckman, in evaluating Raj Chetty's work, has said, of course, neighborhoods matter, but what really matters is the family. And so there's a very interesting tension going on in economics right now between two superstars, Raj Chetty and Jim Heckman, on we all have the same goal, that young people achieve their full potential. But urban economists and labor economists are debating how much of this is due to what goes on within the family versus how much it is what goes on within a neighborhood. And of course, there's synergies between the two. Mac, can I let you in to my non sequitur? Yeah, I mean, I think picking up on what you said, Greg, that at least looking at cities like Baltimore and, and Detroit, there are significant areas of the city that are whole blocks completely abandoned, rows of housing that have been demolished because nobody wants to live there anymore. So if you look at the levels of concentration of poverty and of violence 
in some of the sections of the cities that we're looking at, they're extreme. But then, you know, at the same time, you go down by the Inner Harbor in Baltimore and there are multi-million dollar condos. It's a small part of one and, and sort of a very concentrated bad part of another. I'd like to add a point there that because there's rich people living at Harbor Point in Baltimore, you can tax those men and women, and that does give the mayor a tax base. So, Greg, when we've presented our arguments to some people, they so quickly begin to talk about gentrification and say Baltimore is better off that very few billionaires move there. And they get frustrated with my University of Chicago tendencies to say, if you attract billionaires, that's the sign of a vibrant city, and you can tax these people to spend on redistribution and pre-K for all. And Greg, at least when I taught at Hopkins, that was not a winning line with young people. Matt, I wanted to kind of maybe go off on a little bit of a tangent, since you mentioned Raj Chetty's recent work. This is going to be a little bit out of left field. And I'm not, I'm not a historian of thought, so I could be completely off base here. There's some classic economic ideas at work here, right? So like the idea that expectations affect people's human capital investments, right? Ben Porath, you know, it's a very long tradition in economics. But there's some other ideas which I see as rooted outside economics in other more qualitative social science disciplines. So in particular, I see a lot of roots of Raj Shetty's work in how place affects children's later life outcomes as rooted in a lot of sociologists' work, right? And Stephanie's work, but also earlier, like William Julius Wilson. What else should economists be taking more seriously from other social scientists? Is there something economists should be thinking about more? This role of culture, there are debates about Asian culture, Jewish culture. When I was young, we weren't allowed to talk about culture as a potential causal effect on how we carry ourselves. The challenge with culture is how you measure it. And is this an exogenous variable, to use a word I promise not to use? And the one other thought that I have, if a challenge that urban economists face is we usually don't have random assignment of who lives where. The field, yes, with move to opportunity, there was a voucher and you had to use it to move to certain neighborhoods. But because we don't have random assignment in our field, people choose where they're going to live. Firms choose where they're going to locate. This causes challenges for us to figure out how and why place matters. And so that's what makes our field so fascinating. But we don't have the same ability to experiment as do physical scientists or relative to development economists. And that's what makes our field so challenging and interesting. I think one area that you flagged that I found very promising, I guess not surprising given my background, is you talked about legal barriers to and other rule-based barriers to innovation at the urban level. We've talked about zoning and you talk about that as well in in the book. You also talk about state meddling and federal meddling as well. For example, the decision by the governor of Maryland to cancel I think it was the red line and shift that money to road projects that didn't benefit people of Baltimore and so on. There are a lot of examples of that. And I have no quarrel with that. I agree completely. I think one, I guess I'll get on my own hobby horse for 15 seconds and just, you know, I think the flip side of that is that cities do have a lot of authority in certain limited domains and they are extremely bad at exploiting that. For example, there's this debate about whether cities should control their own transportation systems rather than states. And immediately people think about public transportation, which is, of course, critical. And very few cities run their own public transit agencies. Those are usually state or interstate agencies. But cities overwhelmingly control their streets. They often don't own or control the major arteries, but they often do the other ones. And they may even have some role over the major ones. And they are more innovative with respect to allocation of the right-of-way and repurposing the right-of-way for even non-transportation purposes than are states and the federal government. It'd be hard to be less creative than U.S. DOT or state DOTs have been historically with street space, but they really have been laggards by international standards and by any respectable standard in terms of repurposing excess road space. Road space is something like 30% of the city and many cities using that for housing or schools or anything other than a linear park, which seems to be often the choice and the easy choice. And so 
On the one hand, I want to believe that if we take the shackles off, we'll find that cities will become hotbeds of innovation and the microeconomic forces that we've been talking about will be unleashed in a Pareto optimizing way. But I don't see that happening even where cities have near total discretion right now. And so I don't know where that leaves me. I still want them to to experiment more. I still think a lot of those restrictions are really harmful, but it doesn't leave me optimistic that that's going to really move the needle. Any thoughts on that? So Mac, building on that, given that we are cautious optimists, have you seen signs in Baltimore of, as the local economies faced greater challenges, have they followed Ed Glazer's advice and have thought about ways to change occupational licensing and to remove certain barriers to to unleash entrepreneurs. What good news stories do we have and do they generalize? Yeah, so I'll start by answering that and then building on what Greg was saying. So a great story from, from Baltimore is that in 2017, the city did the first major rewrite of its zoning code in decades. And one of the things that this sort of unleashed the potential for was you had these corner store properties where after the riots of the 1960s, the city zoned out commercial use of those spaces. And so you had these just underutilized corner properties that they allowed for residences to be in and sort of residential neighborhoods, but nobody wants to live in an awkward building that was designed to be a corner store. So finally in in 2017, the city allowed for these spaces to be rezoned as commercial and mixed use and to allow retail and, and other commercial uses to be in residential neighborhoods. And I've slowly over the past three, four years, seen these long vacant places around the city get reactivated and businesses popping up in them. But going back to your point, Greg, about how cities have a large discretion over things like right of way for businesses, I think what the pandemic did was allow businesses to do a little experimenting with that, with closing down streets like you saw in New York City and in some cases in in Baltimore. And so now because they got a little taste of it and because businesses and people loved it, they're starting to say, well, do we really need these stringent right of way and licensing to have for a restaurant to put out 10 chairs on the sidewalk? And so because they got a taste of it, of experimenting with it, they're starting to be a real appetite for it. If I could ask you a question here, one thing that Mac and I have discussed on many occasions is the six cities we study, and let's just do Baltimore. The governor of Baltimore, Larry Hogan, is a suburban Republican, and I have sometimes wondered whether it helps him to have the mayor of Baltimore as his foil. We see this in New York with Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio. Do we have cases where governors and big city mayors work well together? Is there enough urban scholarship on coordinating state and local? When are they rivals versus when are they coordinating? And is that a field that merits new work? Because I claim that our six cities have suffered in many cases because of ongoing fights between an urban mayor and a suburban Republican median voter, Republican governor. It's a great question. The short answer is I don't know. I haven't seen either good examples or scholarship on that. Very often the scholarship takes as a point of departure that there is tension between the two, which I think is natural given that they are really rivals in a state where there is a dominant city. The mayor of that city will be a statewide household name, more or less. So I don't know. I think one way, just thinking historically here, one vehicle for bridging that difference of interest is just enormous projects that unite the city physically with other parts of the state, like building a canal or a railroad or something like that. A lot of that happened in a very different era when there was a lot of graft and machine politics and so on. So I I feel a little like out of my depth in terms of trying to translate the lessons of that in a positive way to the present. I think there are some precedents. Of course, even there, there were tensions. What I maybe take from that is just finding concrete ways for people with divergent interests to work together, notwithstanding those differences. Mac, I'm going to come back to your uh, allusion to some of the policy experimentation that's been done in the last year in response to covid as a segue into the outlook for these cities. What makes you optimistic about the potential of these post-industrial cities? So picking up on something that Matt mentioned earlier, I think work from home really does present a great opportunity for these cities. Again, you look at Baltimore, I have a lot of friends who have tried to live in Baltimore and work in DC. 
and that daily commute was just too much for them. But suddenly you're only doing that two or three times a week, even without an express train, that becomes much more feasible. So I think it's going to open up options for people to reconsider some of these cities in a different light where they might not have beforehand. And also think about moving back to Baltimore. They had grown up here and they have family connections here. I think you saw a lot of that during the pandemic. And Jeff, I would add to that, that each of the six cities is along some great water. And you and I've had many discussions over the years, back to my green cities work, of this fundamental role of amenities. And so this synergy between green cities and safe cities and affordable cities, I think opens up a real sweet spot for these cities. And I can tell a personal story. My New York City mommy visited me in Baltimore. She had not been to Baltimore for 50 years when my mommy showed up. I picked her up from the Amtrak station. I didn't bug back. And my mom and I walked in the inner harbor and she turned to me and said, Matthew, it's just like San Francisco. And I said, yes, Bob, it's just like San Francisco. And so Jeff, Baltimore's an experience good. And just as Star Wars was, just as work from home is. And so my mother was sold. Oh, that's that's great. Is there any final takeaways that you want to make sure that our listeners get from this podcast? So Mac, I have a question for you. What's the biggest weakness of our book? We've been strutting around saying this is a serious book. What do you hate about our book? Well, something that, that people have nailed us on when we talk about it is that they say, we say too much that we don't know what the right answer is. I think there certainly are things, and we've talked about them today a little bit, but that we don't get into specifics about things that cities should try. And I think that's, in some cases, in a lot of our work, I'm hesitant to say that the city of Baltimore should do this. But if you don't do that, you kind of risk coming off unenthusiastic and and too modest. So I think we could make some bigger, bolder statements about specific policies and interventions that these cities should try. And Jeff, a final example there, because you asked us at the start, what does it mean to embrace the urban economics approach? The president of Johns Hopkins, Ron Daniels, sees Silicon Valley succeed in San Francisco, sees the tech hub in Boston, and wants to build a biotech cluster in Baltimore, just as Pittsburgh has a robotics cluster. Matt, can you briefly tell our tale of two cities of whether Baltimore can launch a kick-ass biotech cluster and what we're worried about? Yeah, so something that Baltimore definitely has going for it, and that going back to why we're optimistic about it, is it has these great biotech startups coming out of Johns Hopkins. And again, thinking about coming out of the pandemic, biotech and pharmaceutical research is going to be increasingly important. But at the same time, Baltimore suffers because it doesn't really have a history of being a biotech hub. It lacks a lot of the wet lab space and sort of real estate base. It doesn't have the business manager experience that the Bay Area might have. So what you see is you see businesses starting up here, but as soon as they need large sources of investment capital, they'll go to a Boston or a San Francisco just because that's where the action is. It's a concern about does Baltimore become a farm team where successful companies end up leading. Great questions. Great to have you guys on. Thanks, Mac McComas and Matt Kahn for joining us. The book is Unlocking the Potential of Post-Industrial Cities. So now's the time where we do our appendices. So these are recommendations for our listeners. Mac, why don't you start? What's your appendix for this week? Yeah. So podcast I've been listening to a lot lately is Probable Causation, which is a podcast on economics of crime and law hosted by Jennifer Doliak, who's a associate professor of economics at Texas A&M. And she has a lot of really great shows and topics, but two ones I want to highlight to show sort of the depth and breadth of this issue is that there's a less serious one on the scale where she has an episode with Jason Lindo that looks at the effects of violent media on crime. And he looks at televised UFC fighting, and he finds evidence of an incapacitation effect. The other episode I really like is with Stephen Billings at UC Boulder, where they discuss childhood lead poisoning and crime. And this is a topic that Matt and I are very interested in, and you know, especially in the context of the six cities we look at in our book. That's a great recommendation, Mac. And I love Steve's work on that. I think it's, it's super important. Matt, do you have an appendix for this week? 
I only listen to NBA podcasts. Am I allowed to name Stephen A. Smith? I like the entrepreneurs and successful people. There's always something optimistic on his show. And guys, I need optimism in my life. And so Stephen A. Smith, we might be related. He talks fast. He's an optimist. And so not necessarily urban economics, but always an interesting interview. I love that, Matt. Greg, what's your appendix this week? Well, I've got an appendix, Jeff. I'm a little worried I might be stealing it from you. So you'll let me know if you're going to use it. But there's a, a New York Times article that relates to a topic that Jeff has written about in the past. It was very popular on the internet. The headline is, Can Removing Highways Fix American Cities? The question that it looks at, as, it, as the headline implies, is if you've broken a plate, it's hard to glue the plate back together, right? That doesn't really get you an unbroken plate. And so can we just take these things out? What do we replace them with? It's mostly a visual essay as opposed to like a, a really rigorous cost-benefit analysis, but it does talk about some programs that help with that. It's really interesting. We'll, we'll drop a link in the show notes. I'll just say briefly that I think it's hard to replace these things overnight with something that is useful, but they are constant sources of lead, PM 2.5, PM 10, I particulate matter that causes cancer and other severe health conditions, especially in adjacent underprivileged communities. So I think there's a lot to be said for that. It also got me thinking about other uses of urban land for transportation purposes that maybe don't make so much sense anymore. And I guess I'll put out a shameless bleg here for anybody who knows about general aviation airports. These are the little airports, not your Washington Nationals and JFKs, but your little like municipal airports that are typically very well located, very close to downtown, not just close in the sense of national, but often in Iowa City, for example, it's walking distance from our downtown. They're very land intensive. The Iowa City Municipal Airport is larger than our downtown. And I started looking around and I found that this was often the case. And they really don't service that many aircraft. They're not, they don't provide commercial service by definition. It's not that type of airport. And so I'm kind of wondering a little bit about these. Could that land be repurposed productively the way some have proposed repurposing urban golf courses, certainly public golf courses, turning them into housing or at least into parks that are accessible to people who don't golf. And I haven't researched the question, but as I mentioned, this is a shameless plug or shameless bleg for information. So but the highway article, I think, is something that is very thought-provoking and hopefully will generate other questions. Yeah, both of those are really interesting, Greg. And I think what they have in common is this renewed focus on livability and the quality of life of central cities. The most famous example that I know of of one of these municipal airports being converted is, of course, Mixfield on downtown Chicago's lakefront, which was converted to like kind of like a nature park, right? And so I think it's very much in, in keeping actually with the theme of the subject of today's show too. Okay, so my appendix for this week, I was trying to think of something that was related to the themes of Max and Matt's book. So I picked an article that was published last year in the American Economic Journal Economic Policy called Rethinking Detroit by Owens, Rossi, Hansberg, and Sartre. And so this is a paper that really focuses in on this problem of coordinated investment among developers and residents and governments. And they're thinking about this problem of in the context of Detroit, which quite famously has a lot of vacant land, especially in these neighborhoods surrounding the downtown. And they point out that it seems like there could be obvious welfare gains from filling in that land with residents, right? People could enjoy shorter commutes downtown, and downtown businesses could have larger customer bases. But then they highlight this problem, which is that no one individual or no one developer wants to be the only one to invest in a neighborhood. And so in their model, right, there's this sort of coordination problem. And they suggest actually, right, there's a lot of scope for gains from a big actor like a government making a big commitment, doing one of these big pushes. And the kind of a policy intervention they have in mind is, is a development guarantee. And so the government in this proposal would set a guarantee of a minimum level of residential investment. And it turns out in their model, that's enough to sort of coordinate all of this other private investment in a way that gets these 
vacant neighborhoods to be reactivated. Thanks for listening. For Mac McComas, Mac Khan, and Greg Schill, I'm Jeff Lynn. Our show is produced by Scholar Palace. Check the show notes for links to the articles discussed on the show. And let us know what you think of today's show on Twitter. The show is at Densely Speaking, and our personal accounts are at Greg underscore Schill and at Jeff R. Lynn. Mac and Matt are on Twitter as well. Matt is at MacMC21CC, and Matt is at MattCon1966. If you don't already, subscribe to Densely Speaking wherever you get your podcasts. Take a second to rate and review the show as well. It helps other listeners discover our show. The views expressed on today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated.